Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Hermit, look upon these poets, actors, and musicians creating merriment, delighting all, and offering color to the world. Delightful though they are, do they also study the way of the Buddha? In their own way, I think you could say they do. How? Poets and writers deal in untrue stories and frivolous words. Actors pretend to be something they are not. Musicians create sorrow or euphoria with their instruments. All of them deal in passion, desire, and attachment. Isn't truth only defined by the absence of what is false? Isn't awakening only defined by the absence of delusion? Isn't liberation only defined by the absence of attachment? Perhaps they study the Buddha way by means which are opposite and complementary to those of the Buddha himself. Maybe they themselves are Buddhas. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we will be taking a single specific concept in Buddhism and discussing it at length and in detail. This week's term is bodhisattva. What is a bodhisattva? What are the different meanings of the word bodhisattva, and how do those meanings change over time? We hope you enjoy. So, what is a bodhisattva? This is a really broad and terribly important term in Buddhism, so let's start with the etymology of the word itself. Fair warning, in this explanation I'll be using a lot of Sanskrit words, so I'll make sure to include a dictionary with English spellings in the show notes. The Sanskrit word bodhisattva has two parts. The first part of the word is bodhi, uh, which is derived from bodh, which is the verb to awaken. This is cognate with the title Buddha, which means the awakened one. The second part is sattva. Sattva is one of the three gunas in Brahmanical philosophy. A guna is a mode or a quality or an aspect or characteristic of someone's existence. The three gunas are rajas, tamas, and sattvas. All three of these are present in all people at all times, but one of them can be predominant. Rajas is the quality of activity, passion, movement, self-drivenness, individualism, motivation, etc. Tamas is the quality of imbalance, disorder, chaos, destruction, negativity, delusion, and more. Sattvas is the quality of calmness, harmony, equanimity, peace, virtue, serenity, and things like that. Like I said, these three natures exist in all of us at all times, but our behaviors and our habits cause one to become predominant in our lives. So, bodhisattvas are people in whom sattvas has become the predominant aspect because they are seeking the Buddha way, or the way of bodh, which is awakening. It's important to know this linguistic connection for philosophical reasons, particularly in connection to the Brahmanical philosophy, but I, I, I know that this is all very broad and complicated. There is a much simpler definition to the word bodhisattva. In Buddhism specifically, a bodhisattva is somebody who has awakened bodhicitta, or the mind, which is represented by the word citta, which seeks to enlighten all sentient beings. Thus, they have made a vow in that they will not attain Buddhahood until all sentient beings are saved or enlightened. This represents the most important qualities of a bodhisattva. 
They're selfless. They practice true loving kindness and compassion and giving. They cultivate good karma through study and practice, and they transfer it to others, etc. They're kind of like Buddhist saints, and they are often compared to saints of Catholicism. This is different from an arhat, or a shravaka, who only seeks enlightenment for themselves alone and does not do any work to enlighten others necessarily. It's also different from a prateka buddha, who has achieved enlightenment without hearing the teaching, but again does nothing to enlighten others. This is also different, at least in the early traditions, from a Buddha who is already fully enlightened. In fact, bodhisattvas still have one major attachment left, and that is attachment to enlightenment of all sentient beings. And for that reason, they are not fully, fully, fully enlightened as a Buddha is. All right. So the first part of that conversation, we talked a bit about the Brahmanical terms that lead to the term bodhisattva. Is bodhisattva a specifically Buddhist idea, or is there an equivalent in the Brahmanical traditions as well? I would say that bodhisattva, the compound term, is specifically Buddhist, but there are very compassionate, very highly learned individuals in the Brahmanical tradition who you might think exhibit some similar qualities. Part of the reason why we see Brahmanical terms coming up in Buddhism all the time is because of two reasons. The first reason is there's a very close relationship between the development of the Brahmanical philosophical tradition and the development of Sanskrit and Pali as a language. So you'll see a lot of words that have a very specific religious meaning in Pali and Sanskrit that you might not see in English with Christianity or in other languages with other religions that were around when that language developed. So this is kind of a very close-knit relationship. The other reason is that Buddhism, some have argued, is a response against Brahmanical traditions. In fact, many argue that the Brahmanical traditions are wholly responsible for the caste system as we all colloquially understand it, because they have that idea of dharma that we've talked about before as duty, uh, merited by your position in the world, in the universe. And they think that Buddhism responds with its own definition of dharma, its own use of these terminologies, to strike a contrast, to define itself against the Brahmanical tradition, and to set a new philosophical path that has a lot more individual freedom and social mobility and all these things. But I don't want to go too far down that road because this is a very contentious issue. There's plenty of early Buddhists who full-throatedly endorse the caste system. And there's plenty of in-between people who were scholars and thinkers in India and Nepal who thought some of the things that the Buddhists are saying are true, but some of the things that the Brahmins are saying are true too. And so you have a lot of messy interplay between these traditions, especially early on. All right. What are the different meanings of this word bodhisattva? This is not a term that has as many distinct meanings as some of the other words that we've discussed, like dharma. However, I want to mention that Mahayana Buddhism emphasizes the path of the bodhisattva as superior to the path of the arhat. Much of the Mahayana scripture discusses that it is a better realization of the essence of doctrines like emptiness, non-self, compassion, loving-kindness, etc., that said, the concept of a bodhisattva is present in all three of the main branches of Buddhism that we've discussed, the Mahayana branch, the Theravada branch, and the Vajrayana branch. 
As you can imagine, Theravada Buddhists don't appreciate the Mahayana Buddhists saying that the Bodhisattva path is superior to the Arhat path, which is the one they emphasize. The Mahayana Buddhists say that the Arhat path is selfish and is done out of a desire for permanent existence realized in Nirvana. They say that the Theravadan Buddhists are so attached to their desire for a self, a capital S self, a permanent unchanging self, that they let go of the self in order to regain the self in Nirvana. The Theravada response to this is that the Bodhisattvas are respectable and worthwhile characters, but that they are incredibly rare, and that the Bodhisattva path is just simply not accessible to everybody who wants to reach enlightenment. And many of the teachings about the superiority of the Bodhisattva path, they think, are actually not the direct words of the Buddha, but instead were created later by people who mean to distort the teaching. The Mahayana, which translates to the great vehicle, often calls the Theravada the Hinayana, or the lesser vehicle. That is because they believe the Bodhisattva, or Buddha vehicle, carries more beings to enlightenment than the Arhat vehicle, which only carries the individual. As you can probably imagine, the Theravada never call themselves Hinayanists. That's kind of an insult from the Mahayana group. That debate is not the primary focus of this discussion, and I'm a scholar and a believer in Mahayana teachings, but it would be bad scholarship for me not to introduce both sides of this debate and give air to both sides of the name-calling and the interpretation of the doctrines. Additionally, the belittling of the Theravada teachings is kind of mean, so we shouldn't do it. I also have a respect for the the personal responsibility, I suppose, aspect of the Arhat path. The idea that you are responsible for your own enlightenment has some appeal to me. And it's not wrong to have that inclination because where this difference is pointed at is a difference in the interpretation of non-self. Right. Bodhisattvas believe that non-self is an action. It's a lifestyle that you have to do. You have to perform a truly, truly selfless act in order to achieve and realize non-self. The Theravada Buddhists believe that non-self is a passive truth of reality, of everything. And by doing their own study, by accruing their own good merit, by becoming enlightened themselves, they are also attaining enlightenment for every other sentient being. It's kind of a complicated interpretation. But essentially, if you don't have a self, if that is already true, then you're not just attaining enlightenment for your own individual self, because you don't have one. And so in that regard, any single individual person's enlightenment is everybody's enlightenment. The Bodhisattva path, the Mahayana path, they don't think of it as being as simple as that. They think that there is much more to it, that you have to go out and actually do the teaching, live the teaching, and preach to people and change people's lives in some significant way in order to realize compassion and non-self. Have the meanings of the word bodhisattva changed over time? In answering that, I should turn your attention to important bodhisattvas in Buddhist scripture. Some of the most important ones in the Mahayana tradition are Avalokiteshvara, Samantabhadra, Kasita Garbha, Manjushri, Maitreya, etc. There's many, many of them. I'll provide Sanskrit, Chinese, Korean, and Japanese names for each of these bodhisattvas in the show notes. The unfortunate reality of studying Buddhism is that you're studying all of the vocabulary in four languages, or six if you include Pali and English. 
Anyways, each of these characters has devotional texts, ritual traditions, and particular types of representations in imagery and statuary. They also have specific domains in many cases. They will each get their own episode where we will discuss all of these things in a lot more detail, but the short version is that Avalokiteshvara is the bodhisattva of compassion and mercy and loving kindness. Samantabhadra is the one for wisdom and knowledge. Kasita Garba delivers souls from this realm to the next realm when they pass away. Manjushri represents gentleness and true knowledge. And Maitreya is the Buddha of the future, for when all of the teachings have been forgotten. In later texts, these bodhisattvas, and by extension all others, are said to have a lot of the same powers that Buddhas are said to have such as arising in the world in any form and using all kinds of skillful means to enlighten sentient beings. That is all to say that the way that this word changes over time is that the distinction between Buddhas and Bodhisattvas is eventually broken down almost entirely in the texts, to the point where a Bodhisattva can arise in the world as a Buddha, which doesn't really make sense. If they're not a Buddha already, how could they show themselves as a Buddha to enlighten people? And also, Buddhas are said to embody bodhisattva-like characteristics, having a strong desire and attachment for the enlightenment of all sentient beings over time. So they kind of come to be the same, and the texts often talk about them interchangeably in that way. The other point that I would like to mention is that the purpose and the role of a bodhisattva in the real world changes over time. Initially, they are thought of as those who study and practice really hard and occasionally go give dharma sermons and teach others. But later on, two important things happen that change the purpose of a bodhisattva. First, the teaching of non-duality gets pushed to its absolute conceptual limits, such that the distinction between suffering, passions, desire, attachment, delusion, samsara, and awakening, liberation, enlightenment, and nirvana all become collapsed into one. The reason for that is that attachments and passions teach us the truth of impermanence and emptiness, and thus push us forward on the path to enlightenment. If you contemplate something that you really, really, really love and are passionate about, then you come to understand its impermanence. And if you come to understand its impermanence, you come to understand its emptiness. And if you come to understand emptiness, you come to understand suffering, and you're already most of the way there. Uh, you're already starting to have Buddhist thoughts, have thoughts of your own Buddhahood. And so in that way, the, these things are thought of as being equally as valuable as the sutras, as, as listening to a sermon, as all of the practices, etc. The other important change is that certain literature argues that the bodhisattva, by nature of their vow to save all sentient beings, has no purpose among those who are already on the path to enlightenment, who have cultivated their bodhicitta, and who already have really good karma. So it doesn't make sense for them to go and give dharma talks to a bunch of other monks, because those monks are already well on their way. Instead, their work is best done where all of the dukkha is, where all of the passions are. Their job is to alleviate dukkha, and so they need to go where all of it is. These two combine to mean that in East Asia, particularly in Japan, poets, actors, and musicians are often thought of as hidden bodhisattvas, in fact, there's a famous semi-legendary poet named Narihira in Japan, who is famous for having slept with over 3,000 women. And in medieval literature, he's often interpreted in this hidden bodhisattva fashion. And it's said that the reason why he slept with all these women was to entangle them in the passions and in desire, and thus 
teach them about enlightenment, teach them about emptiness, teach them absolute truth. And I, I think that that legend is a little bit comical. It's kind of funny because I know for a fact from the literature that this hidden bodhisattva thing happened after he had all these sexual ex exploits. So it's a little bit of apologetics. It's like, oh no, I wasn't sleeping around. I was just doing this to enlighten people. I'm actually a bodhisattva. You just don't know it. It's a really funny story. And he's, a, he's an, inc an incredible character to read about in the classical Japanese literature. That has some of the similar shades of being slightly self-serving, I think, that's the same as when we had a similar talk about violence in a previous episode. That sounds like somebody justifying their actions after the fact to me. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. We used to, in the early traditions, we used to see that the Theravadan Buddhists were actually right. Uh, bodhisattva is very rare. That's why we have like about 10 or 12 named bodhisattvas in the early texts, the ones that I mentioned and then some others. But as the Mahayana develops, the number of bodhisattvas goes up exponentially because the Mahayana texts, in order to emphasize the supremacy and the significance and the importance of whatever teaching is about to come out in a sermon, they will use all of these insane unimaginable numbers of characters in the audience and all of these huge reactions that happen in nature and among the animals and in the whole universe, all to add like gravitas to what the Buddha is saying. And as this like multiplication of bodhisattvas happens in the text, oftentimes among the followers, the same thing happens because certain teachings lend themselves to a person just being able to say, oh, I'm a bodhisattva. And that's why I did all of this. You guys just don't know it. I, I was a bodhisattva. I had forgotten that I was a bodhisattva, but now I remember. And you guys had no idea. That's why I did all the things I did. This particularly happens after the increasing popularity of the Lotus Sutra. The Lotus Sutra really makes it so that every sentient being, and if you believe some of the thinkers that come after the Lotus Sutra, even non-sentient beings like rocks and trees and mountains, they too are also Buddhas, right? So every single being, sentient and non-sentient, in the Lotus Sutra has a prophesied Buddhahood and has been bestowed with this excellent skilled use of expedient means to enlightenment and expedient means for enlightening others. And so you see a lot of people start to claim that they're bodhisattvas or that someone they like is a bodhisattva or someone they hate is a bodhisattva. And so this term gets disseminated from this very saintly classification that's only reserved for certain characters to being like nearly everybody. We hope you enjoyed our discussion of bodhisattvas. Join us next week where we will be discussing the Buddhist perspective on mental health. What does the Buddhist scripture say about it? How does it deal with mental illness? And how does that perspective change over time? Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Thank you very much. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Our email is bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at brightbuddhism. 
As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.